Hey what guys, what's going on? It's Ramsey with the Pinpoint Players and I'm joined with my friend Tim. Hey there Pinpoint Players. We're back with another episode of High Score, the Netflix show, and this is episode 4, This is War. This is easily my favorite one so far and I know there's something to like about each one that we've watched so far, but this one is my favorite from a nostalgic purpose. Oh yeah? Uh, you were just telling me briefly about that. Yeah, if we remember from a couple of episodes back, actually in our first season, we did touch upon struggles that uh, your dad went through to get to Nintendo, but ended up getting uh, the Sega Genesis. That's right. And it's kind of funny that the intro just reminded me of that. Because so the intro, like any other intros that we see in this show to an extent, that makes me nostalgic for when I played my Sega. And I'll get to that in a sec. As far as the show goes, as far as kind of my observations, from what I've seen and what I've noticed from my own life, Nintendo did look untouchable from everything we've seen so far, especially with Mario's influence in the 1980s. And in the late 80s, all kids wanted Nintendo, my brother being one of them. Of course, my dad had to end up getting us a Sega Master System because that's what he was able to find. And in the end, I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did because I got to be exposed to all the cool things on the Sega. Sonic being one of them, obviously, and we'll get to that in a second. Sega, just to give you a brief overview from what we learned, they were once known for just making arcade machines and they were eager to enter the fight against Nintendo and they hoped that a 16-bit console would edge out the NES. But as we found out watching this and with our own lives, they needed hit games because it's not enough just to have 16 bits. No, it wasn't. I mean, they had a brilliant concept at the time. They had a, a great opportunity. Around, yeah, around the late 80s, Nintendo actually shared, had 90%. Was it 90, I think? 90%. 90, 98. So a little bit more. It had 98% of the home console market in the late 80s. So this approach that Sega wanted to take, they saw that they had fertile ground. It's a an, it's an, uh, pretty easy thing to identify when you only have one company as its competition. But being the competition, uh, Nintendo, I mean, at, at that time, Santa Claus was practically making Nintendo for kids all across the world. And to really break into that ground uh, from what I got from this episode is that the competitive nature that we have in us really drives what we want to get achieved. And it really comes through with, well, the title of the episode, This is War, what can be more competitive in human nature than war? But the war that they were talking about, obviously, was uh, fiscal. Uh, it was uh, the market. It was uh, getting into people's homes, getting their product sold on shelves. The way that they went about it, pretty brilliant in the way that they took their marketing strategy by the helm. It's kind of crazy how it all culminated in. First off, you said 98%. The only thing I can think of besides the NES that was released before the Master System was I think Atari had a garbage Atari 5200. It was their successor to the 2600. But I think at that point that was either the same year as the crash or probably well after the crash. So at that point, if you weren't Nintendo until Sega came along, you pretty much had no chance. You had no system. You had no market share. Just kind of pack your things and go home. But back to the um, meaning of the issue, the guy that kind of got it all together, it was a man named Tom Kalinske. And he was approached... Oh, he... But yeah, by the way, he had a big Mattel toy background. He was one of the big people uh, behind uh, the advertisement scene of Mattel. What was it? Was it the advertisement? I'm just trying to get my facts straight. Yeah, it was. Uh, he was a part of the marketing, the marketing groups for Mattel products. Uh, he was responsible for how the commercials were essentially designed, the way that they were shot, how they sold the toys. He had that knowledge in the back of his head. Got it. So they picked the kind of the right man, the right advertising point man to get this done. 
So he was visited in Hawaii with his family. Yeah, visited. On vacation. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. Visited. Right. And the and this is the 80s. This isn't like, you. oh, you're posting on Instagram and it's location tagged and you can like kind of creep somebody. No. This guy was visited by this chairman and CEO of Sega Japan and asked him to run Sega of America kind of on the spot and went straight to Japan from Hawaii to see the tech they were talking about in the Sega Master System and accepted the offer after seeing it and believing it. You know, the console, the handheld system, the game. I think it was called the Game Gear. I actually had that as a kid. My dad got it for my brother and I. And that thing was awesome. But with six AA batteries, it had a two-hour battery life. So it was abysmal. It chewed through. I'm dead serious. It just chewed through battery but it was fun to play six six double a's that's monster Wait. but yeah he believed in the vision he accepted it and said let's do it uh which is uh, what i found very funny actually about that scene in the uh, documentary because he believed in klinsky's vision his background but when he made his pitch based off of what he knew the boardroom got very upset with him. They didn't agree with anything that he'd said. Five-step plan that he came up with actually worked. I mean, it, you know, once it played out, one of them I do want to uh, bring up a little bit later on, but that, that fear of taking what you think will work based off of something that you're learning about and putting it in the hands of people who can make it happen. I mean, they demonstrated it very well in the documentary visually, by having him shrink down on the table. And I thought that was beautiful visual representation of how he felt uh, putting himself out there. But the, the, the swing and the hook on that was that the CEO, Hayuo Nakayama, turned around and said, I, I said that you would be the director of American sales for the Sega, so go ahead and do what you think, uh, your, your proposed plan. He wasn't very happy about it at all. But he made him a promise. Yeah. The, the strength and the will to believe that he would be able to do it despite his disagreement is a sign of a very strong company and a CEO. Yeah, because these days, if just to give a cultural kind of significance to that, if if you laid out your plan like that and, you run it, and you're telling this to an American CEO and he says he doesn't like it, you're done. He promised him. He said, you know what? I said you'd run it, so go run it. If you wanted to stay as the um, Sega of America you know, director, he has to sell a million units. And at that point, they only had sold 70,000. So they came up with a plan, five-step plan. And I had to write this down because it was actually pretty brilliant in its own right. You had to lower the price of the Sega. You had to defeat Mario, which, oh yeah, easy. Beat Mario, no problem. <laughs> uh, the third thing, more sports games. The fourth thing, make it cool for teens. And the last thing is make fun of Nintendo. I actually wrote that down. Yeah, make fun of Nintendo for the last thing. Very strange. You know, the first one kind of made sense. They told us in the documentary that the original price for it would be just under $200. It was $189, and they dropped it down to $159 or $149. So it was a $30 drop, I think. They were able to do very easily over in the United States. But the second thing that they needed to do, defeat Mario... I jokingly said, you know, as a as a player, you know, in today's culture, we can easily defeat Mario. We we have speedrunners breaking Mario 64, destroying the game, but in a way playing it. So it's easy to defeat Mario, but at the time, I mean, he It was Mario. Mario was the juggernaut. Well, yeah. He was Nintendo's poster child, and we must remember, Nintendo did have 98% of the market. Easy easy thing to write down on paper, but in practice, good luck. 
Yeah, essentially. But thank God they had a very skilled game designer who needed to simplify the problem, which I, personally, from my own experience, you come across a situation, which I think we all do. If you come across a situation that you feel overwhelmed, like you can't control it or you don't know the outcome and you're afraid of making an approach of handling it, the easiest way to handle something like that is to simplify the problem. And this game designer, uh, Hirokazu Yeshua, I'm butchering the pronunciation, but he was a Sega game designer for the Genesis. He noticed that the speed of the game system was its unique feature with its 16 bits as opposed to its 8. So he wanted to come up with something that demonstrated the speed of the game. And he was inspired by what he thought Americans enjoyed at the time, which were roller coasters, which, hey, I won't argue. I enjoy a roller coaster, don't you? A nice trip to Six Flags when it's not in the middle of the summer packed with thousands of people. Yeah, no, it's fun. Batman, right? You know, the Batman roller coaster, Superman ride a steel. I've been on both those. They're fun. It sucks that you have to wait 45 minutes to ride the minimum, but they're fun when you get to ride them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I nearly passed out on the Superman, but I, I rode that Batman four or five times. I love the Batman. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's great. No, I I love that thrill kind of stuff. I mean, the other one, um, it's not a roller coaster, but it's, it's the one that shoots you straight up. I forget what that ride's called, but it's... They do a countdown. It's a fake countdown. They shoot you straight up, and you're like a couple hundred feet in the air. It's to it's totally terrifying, like for the first couple seconds. But then the adrenaline kicks in, and then you forget the fact that you're dangling a hundred feet up in the air. Or so mm. it's great. Lots of fun. But oh yeah. But anyway, yes. Yeah, as, as you were saying, he was just looking around, trying to get inspiration. And what's interesting is he talks about the game was made before the character before finding the perfect creature to fill it in, which is odd because usually you create the main character and then evolve the game around him. So backwards approach, I mean, at the time, maybe it wasn't nuanced because this was the mid-80s. There was kind of no molds to be broken quite yet. It was kind of a free-for-all and you have a concept and you feel like sketching something out and seeing what you can do with it and seeing what people like. Go for it, man. You bring up an interesting point because I was also thinking about how unusual it must have been for them to try and design a game without a character to really have a reference for. I was thinking about it earlier, not, I think, not, to, not today, but a day or two ago. I was thinking about how old video games in general were. And I remember that some of the very first video games, at least home console systems, my dad had some of the very first. So he was in his teens, early 20s, maybe mid-20s when he had them. And they were starting to come out. So they can't be older than my dad, but I'm certainly younger than they are. And it's that sort of weird time in between. So you're right. There weren't molds to be broken. So perhaps maybe this was the first time that they had designed a layout and a system and a game before incorporating a character. But was, what a truly unique thing. I didn't, well, to be honest, and I'm going to, I'm going to share this with you and the Pinpoint players, I never, I never played the Genesis. I had a neighbor who played the Genesis, and I was jealous of that neighbor for having the Genesis, so I never really liked Sega or the Genesis or the games or Sonic because I was jealous. I'm, you know, this is the first time I'm opening up and admitting about this, but because I didn't have it, it wasn't good. Oh, no, we were all like that as kids. It's like, oh, fucking Jimmy across the street has this cool new toy or this sick, you know, scooter or something. Well, I don't like the scooter. I hate that. 
because he has what I don't have. It's a childish thing, and we've all went through that stage at one point or another, and video games are also a casualty of this. But yeah, just looping back, though. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, what I wanted to get to, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I found a new appreciation actually watching this episode for the Genesis because I didn't realize it because I was too young and jealous. It was a revolutionary system in that it was that fast-paced, but also the building of the game Sonic. That's what we're getting to, is the, they had so much ahead of it before they even had the character design for Sonic. No, yeah, and that's, that's the thing. They, the steps that Naoto Oshima, the steps that he took to arrive to that point were f- quite awesome. Besides the fact of him building the game first, then getting the character second, I love the approach he used to get it. His first idea was a rabbit, then a panda, but didn't want it to be overly cute or confusing when it would do roll attacks. The hedgehog which in hindsight is kind of an odd fit. It's like, just looking back on it, because it's like, you know, hedgehogs, hedgehogs are cute, but you wouldn't think of a hedgehog barreling through a level at like high speeds. But but then he drew it, a human character and another animal. And then he surveyed people on a personal trip when he was in New York City in Central Park about what characters the people liked the most. And Sonic's no surprise was number one. And so with that, he was to be the mascot. Sega was going to put their entire weight behind him. And to make him look fast, he was given spikes on his back or sneakers and made blue because of Sega's logo. So it was just a culmination of everything. And the other points I kind of want to make on that is it was really cool seeing the concept art, seeing what would become potentially future levels. I think some of the concept art, the stuff that he drew, the backgrounds, like the levels, I swear um, it was probably the Green Hill Zone, the very first level in the very first Sonic game. It just looked like it. And I'm not surprised if it is, to be honest. And it launched in 91 to great success and easily was Sega's most iconic game, bar none, even to this day. And it's tough looking back on that, not because they didn't do well or anything of that sort, but Sega was once part of the consoles, they made games, they were right in the thick of it with Nintendo, and they had a sad ending with the Dreamcast in the early 2000s, or the late 90s, whenever it was released. And it's too bad that even today, they only exist to make maybe a handful of games. They're shadow of their former self. It is. Uh, you know, you never really truly know uh, where things will go in the future. I mean, for this point in time that the episode covered, yeah, uh, we witnessed the rise of uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, in ni- it launched in 1991 and it sold 22 million copies. Uh, gross estimated sales ugh, in the millions, we're looking at $2,300 million. <laughs> so wait. 2300 million so 2.3 2.3 million billion 2.3 billion uh no inflation has been added so when you guys entered that number in your inflation calculator you know that that was a success so good job sega but you know say la vie you know the the you know the company had felt fallen on hard times but looking back on what the episode covered uh it successfully defeated mario with the introduction of sonic which just needed the next phase in uh, Kalinsky's plan, which was more sports. And this is where we get to introduce uh, a future football. <laughs> a future. <laughs> John Madden. John Madden. And this was definitely an awesome part. Like everything here was brand new information to me. I loved the guy that talked over the sports part, his name was Trip Hawkins, and he wanted to revamp what sports games were because sports games were incredibly simple up until the late 80s. 
for the most part, Trip informed us that uh, most sports games didn't feel like sports games. So he wanted to incorporate that feeling into a video game. At the time, video games were only 8-bit and weren't able to run as quickly or as competitively as he wanted uh, the fans to feel. And when he brought this up, he needed someone behind the game to really sell it. And at the time, John Madden was a Super Bowl winning coach. I believe, yeah, for, what was it, the 49ers? No, 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 no. <laughs> Super Bowl winning coach for the Oakland Raiders, which then became the, which became the Los Angeles Raiders, then Oakland again, and then Las Vegas. For you non-sports fans, are you confused? So am I. Anyway. Moving on. But yeah, uh, during a very prolonged train ride, Trip Hopkins introduced the concept of what would become Madden football. And he pitched it at the time for an 8-bit console by having a 7-on-7 match. But John Madden, being John Madden, who knows football, said that it needed to be an 11-11. It needed to be a full game, full roster, in order for it to have the feel. Trip ultimately agreed and he wondered Hold on, just to cut you off before you go any further john straight up said seven on seven is not real football and would not agree to anything except for 11 on 11 and the other thing was when trip pitched the idea to him he met him in denver like he flew to denver to meet him and they went on a train back to oakland because john was afraid of flying so they were on a train for two and a half days which is plenty of time to pitch this idea so i just want to give that context because i just found that kind of funny i didn't know john was afraid of flying but yeah, he came in with a 60-page dossier to basically talk to the whole game about him, the concepts and everything. But anyway, continue. Yeah, wheels never leave the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, 8-bit consoles weren't able to hold the processing power necessary to you know, load the graphics, the, the field, the characters, the ball, all of that. And he, uh, Hawkins wondered, you know, what out there could handle this insert introduction for the sega genesis a 16-bit machine that was able to fully function the uh, envisioned uh, madden nfl game which was just perfect timing yeah and the developer to help lead the charge his name was joe yabara he tackled originally the challenge of getting the football game on pc and then i think if i'm not mistaken if i have my facts correct it was PC first, and then it was transitioned to the 16-bit Sega console later because it was the first console that actually had the power to do 11 on 11. And so, as Faye would have it, Trip needed a console to run the game, and Tom Kalinske needed a killer sports game on the system. So it was a perfect marriage, perfect time, kind of like the planets align. And in the end, John gave a seal of approval, and it was the start of EA's dominance of sports games. EA Sports. It's in the game. <laughs> But yeah, all started by Madden, John Madden football on the Sega. And here we are, 30, over 30 years later, their dominance still continues, unfortunately, with Madden. But that's another topic for another time. It is, because I also don't like how uh, EA has handled a lot of their properties. And if you also feel the same way, pinpoint players want to reach out to you and let you know that you are not alone. We do not like what EA is doing, and we will cover it very soon. But until then, let us know your frustrations down below in the comments. Or wherever you contact us. Yeah, we have an Instagram that you can reach out to as well as an email account. Yep, and we'll get to that uh, toward the end of this episode. Until then, um, yeah, Trip Hawkins, um, it was a success. There were probably a lot of, you know, sweat and tears to make this happen. But 
in the end, he succeeded in bringing sports to the console. And step three of Tom's mastery plan to take down Nintendo was already done. Now, which brings us to step four, which I also think was kind of the most interesting uh, tactic that they used. It was to make it cooler for teens. Certainly, incorporating sports games was uh, a part of that. The way that they handled it further kind of confirmed something that I'd always believed when even I was in college, you know, eight, nine years ago, that they sent people to colleges, high schools, uh, places where teens frequented, and they just called the dude the Sega guy. That's some genius level shit. That's all I want to interrupt you and say. That's some really genius type stuff to make kids really interested to play the game or college kids, rather. That's just good marketing, honestly. Yeah. If I'm not wrong, I think that they covered this earlier in the season with uh, Atari or Nintendo having sort of a similar thing with the game counselors in the mall. You had this ideal job where you just go and play games. I mean, in this episode, which I highly recommend everyone, I hope everyone's watched it, because if, if you've gotten to this point and you haven't watched it, good bravo. I mean, we spoiled it for you. <laughs> but essentially what they instructed the Sega guys to do was go into dorms or lecture halls or classes, literally set up a Sega Genesis and play it in front of people. That's that's all that they were instructed to do, which I assume they were paid to do. So, of course, easy gig. No, easy gig. It's perfect. It's like be the Sega guy. Go around wearing Sega, you know, swag. Carry the Genesis system. Play it in like study halls or dorms or whatever, and just look cool doing it. I mean, that's that's an awesome gig. I mean, it worked. Even when I was little, it worked. I was jealous of my neighbor who had a Genesis. <laughs> And that's the thing, and you're, and just to carry this point on, like this marketing push, their objective was to advertise it to teens, where Nintendo would advertise it to younger kids, and they were hoping to catch that cool factor with the older sibling, hoping to hook the younger one. And I am proof of this. I am proof of this. My brother played the Sega. He played Sonic at first. He played Ghost, the Ghostbusters game. He played Conceded, and it just made me want to play those games. I was terrible at those games as a kid. But I still played them and I still wanted to keep playing them because he got me into it because he was the one that hooked me into it. It's just like it said. So that's why I love this episode. It's a nostalgia bomb for me. It's awesome. Yeah. And it definitely worked for everything I just said. Yeah, you're living proof. With all of that, I mean, when I even when I was in college, I felt like there were people just there. And my adult life, when I r- recognized it, was uh, alcohol sales. When you would be at a bar... There would be uh, some sort of promotional liquor or something, and they would be there. The most memorable one I can think of was, I forget the bar in Boston. Uh, was it Poorhouse, McGreevy's? Uh, mm. This is more so for the Boston peeps. I'm just trying to even remember where it is. Um, this is, it was, um, it, was a po- it was across from the Common, right next to Emerson. Oh, uh, I, I know roughly what you're talking about, and I can't remember because we... Because we went there like six years ago, so... Yeah, it was right down an alleyway, right by Emerson. Tell you what, if any of you pinpoint players from the Boston area know the area bar we're describing, let us know however you can. I don't care the method you do it. Anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, uh, there was a promotional liquor happening, and it was Tito's Handmade Vodka. And essentially what they were doing was they would pour you a free shot, and you would get uh, a keychain. But if you 
bought a, a shot after that, you take the receipt, show them, and they would give you more things. The more shots that you bought, the more things that they would give you. And it was an easy thing to do because they were very attractive women. It was a promotion, like, they were there intentionally to do that. They had an objective. They had a product to sell. They were going to sell it whatever means necessary to make sure that you remembered it. So that way, when you go home and are going to a party the following weekend, you might pick up that Tito's Vodka. I'll always remember those shirts. Anyway, it was a memorable experience uh, the same way that the fifth and final point to Kalinsky's plan was to be memorable and it was to make fun of Nintendo, which does sound very odd, but it also kind of makes sense because they're competitors. The quote that kind of tied it all together, Genesis does what Nintendo don't, <laughs> which I was at that point when I started playing these systems, I was kind of too old to remember those advertising, but I swear I did see some of these commercials when I was a kid on TV. Like there was one TV ad with the Genesis on a race car, Nintendo on a milk truck. The, I think I vaguely remember seeing that. Just maybe. I mean, I mean, you can go easily look it up on YouTube, guys or gals. I swear I saw it. I swear I saw it, and I swear. And that's the thing. Advertising back then was funny because there was commercials like that. There was the magazine ads. Um, there was, I think, ads in like, and I don't remember this, but there were probably ads in like, you know, the Boston Tea subway cars. Point is, and they were, and they were funny and like kind of zany stuff it was different than today's ads today's ads is like you know a matte color finish to make you feel you know calm comfortable and you're going to just buy our subscription to toothpaste or lotion or whatever you want to get <laughs> yeah it was zany back then it was zany yeah that's a great word to describe it i mean uh if you grew up with us you know what we're talking about in the 90s advertising but if you aren't familiar with it we certainly want you to have an understanding. So just uh, do yourself a favor and do some quick Google-ing on YouTube and look them up. They're creative. I, I would say creative because yeah, they're unusual. They were different. Yes. Yes, they were. And, and you don't but, see but anything. Yeah, you don't see anything like it today. You really don't. Like I said, everyone, there's probably a YouTube video where it's montage of 90s game commercials and it's like a half hour video. Go watch that stuff. That gives you a good sense of what to expect. But especially the Nintendo and Sega War stuff, that stuff's pretty cool. Last couple of things I want to say before we wrap up on this is definitely want to mention two more names. Chris Tang and Gordon Balemi. Chris Tang, today his current job is a game designer. But he was in the Nintendo World Championship finalist, and he played in the 1994 Sega World Championship. And I have to mention this stuff because this event was peak 90s, as we were saying with the ads. Sega did an ad for a competition in their magazine, Sega Vision. Same page as uh, the Sonic and Knuckles game I think they were just coming out with. They would reveal the next Sonic game alongside the tournament. 100,000 entries for a 25k prize for the best player in the world. And it was called... This is how 90 it is. Rock the Rock to be televised on MTV. Preliminaries would be held at the Hard Rock cafes around the world. And one was actually in Boston, funny enough. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that uh, one of the finalists in the Ultimate Tournament was actually from Boston. Yeah, no, that was, I was kind of surprised because I saw, it showed a list of cities of where the tournaments were being held and it said Boston, Massachusetts. Like, oh, cool, our city got a shout out. We almost always get overshadowed by New York or LA or Chicago or something else. But hey, Boston was in there. And as it's expected, because this was such a big thing in the 90s, I'm telling you that quirky, zany type of advertising, huge media presence for the remaining 24 people. And 
Oh, and to top it off, the grand final will be at Alcatraz, which was known as The Rock, because of course. And it being on MTV, it was a you know rock station, rock music, so... They so, really, yeah. They, lots of rocks. Yeah, they really wanted to hype up that uh, cool, too cool for school presence. Yeah, only the cool kids, you know, go on MTV and play on the rock at the rock. You know, that's kind of that kind of edgy '90s. Uh, you know, backwards backwards cap with your uh, leather jacket with like a Sonic the Hedgehog or some other like game character on it. Ever. Whatever, man. The, the Bart Simpson trope, basically. Don't have a cow. I'm oh, sorry. The only thing I was going to say is the guy from Boston, I actually saw his name in the episode. His name was Mark, Mark Gunnian. Julian. Gunnian? Gunnian? I think it's Gunnian. Mark Gunnian. You know what? I'm going to go with your pronunciation because i probably pronouncing it wrong. So it came down to Chris Tang and Mark. Uh, I was really impressed with the fact that Mark was against Chris Tang and how Chris Tang, in the semi-final before he got to the final he had developed a a strategy a perfect strategy that he didn't want to reveal to the other players because the other players could see where his character was and how he was collecting the rings oh important uh plot point for the pinpoint players i love that alliteration the contest was held in a three minute round and each player needed to collect the most rings anyone who's played sonic knows how incredibly difficult it is because you literally can just get hurt and lose all of your rings or what was it half your rings if you have 100 rings you'll only be able to recover 20 max so you're incentivized to not get hit because if you're trying to get an extra life and you're close to 100 all it takes is one hit to knock you back so the fact that he was hiding information from his other competitors uh really demonstrated his competitive spirit in that he wanted to win and when it came down to the finals uh, between him and Mark, he felt so confident that within the last couple of seconds of the game, he took his eyes off of his screen to look at Mark's to see how many rings he had. And based off of doing the quick mental math, he knew how many Mark had. He knew how many he had. He knew he won. And he, with that, he was the Sega World Championship, which if you're a kid in the 90s, is the coolest thing in the world. Certainly has its bragging rights. Oh, yeah. Even even these days, even 25 years later, I would love to tell that as like a, even just a random water cooler moment, like in office. It's, yeah, you know, I was in a competition back in the 90s. You know, something small I was on Alcatraz, you know, kind of low key. They put me in handcuffs. They walked me into a bus. I was on Alcatraz. I broke out. It was on MTV. No biggie. No big deal. No big deal. Chris is a cool guy. Got that impression in the documentary that continued his path into becoming a game designer and he kind of got to continue what he enjoyed doing, is what I mean. Yeah, and I think uh, our final mention was Gordon Bellamy. Yeah, Bellamy. He was a self-described gay black man, and he talked about how when he was a kid, he said he wasn't able to play football because he I, maybe he said himself that he didn't have the physique, and because of him being gay, especially back in the, I think it was the 80s, he just felt kind of... Um, shunned by society even if even if society didn't know about it he just i'm trying to think of the best way for phrasing um uh didn't he, feel included just that he, he he didn't feel included and he felt that he couldn't express himself in the way he wanted to and the john madden football game that came out on sega could allow him to enjoy sports in a way where he couldn't in the real world for not being athletic and he said it changed his life because it inspired him to pursue a career athletic electronic arts and he says and this is the power of, you know, 
the human willpower in action. He cold called pretty much the entire company until Jim Simmons gave him a shot in entry job and then working his way up. He knows that many players in the NFL were black, so he thought Madden should reflect that. So he worked to make sure that African-Americans would be included in the Madden 95 release. And he was a part of that team to make it do so. And the game Madden ended up bringing up people in games because of the inclusion, having black players in Madden. It made it feel more inclusive. And if you're just some kid or young adult playing these games in the 90s, it does two things. It makes you feel more, it makes the experience feel more inclusive, authentic. And for Sega, it makes people that are only interested in maybe sports games to go get a console themselves and to be a part of the gaming community. So it ends up doing twofold. It allows people to express themselves in a way that even Sega didn't know would happen. And it helps their bottom line. But the most important thing is it helps a man like Gordon to overcome the obstacles in his life for who he is to allow him to express himself, especially back then. Oh yeah, I mean, we touched on it pretty strongly in our last episode about role-playing, how important people who play the game identify themselves as the main characters. They're able to live the hassle or pain-free life that they live in reality through these video games, which I really think is one of the most important things about video games. Uh, Gordon Bellamy says in the documentary, which really like struck me in the heart, for marginalized people, so much energy is spent justifying our existence. I mean, that's just painful to hear. There shouldn't be anybody out there who feels like they need to expend even just enough energy to just to justify their existence. The fact that's just uh, those are just two words that y- you shouldn't justifying existence. Y- we exist. There isn't any other way around it. There isn't a world where we don't exist. You know, the fact that we do exist is a miracle. So to feel marginalized is a, a huge problem. And one way that I feel like all of us can address this is when we see or interact with people who are abnormal, abnormal, unusual, different. You know, let's just take a fraction of time just to learn more about them. That will do them good to socialize. And it will do you good to better understand something that you're unfamiliar with. It won't take much time. It won't kill you to do it. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Putting yourself in someone else's shoes that you might walk through on the streets, it would at least open up your world to the fact that some people are just trying to get by. And that's just it. I know we're straying off here from like what we talked about with gaming, but the reality is we're all just trying to get by. And we don't need to make it harder for each other. Life can already be difficult. We don't need to make it any harder than it needs to be. You know what I mean? I do. A good friend of ours had to fix a sewage truck that was stuck on their property, causing a traffic jam on their street. And as he's doing this, he spent two or three hours, the way he told the story, to help this truck driver get off his property, but also to alleviate traffic. He was helping someone uh, in their day. But the traffic accumulating behind him sat there and did nothing. It, It frustrated me, but I hate to get off topic. We can help each other in our day to get through life. And it's as simple as just checking in on people who may seem a little strange and to learn more about what's going on with them. We may not be able to help them with everything, 
but just by being there as a friend or a close companion would do wonders for people like them. For Gordon's case, it worked out in his favor because it was the driving force for him to implement something that everyone kind of recognized. Most of the NFL players at the time were African-American, but the game's designers had white players in them. Yeah, he, he recognized and he realized that, hey, the game should reflect a lot of the black players that are playing the actual game. Like, that's all. Let's get representation in and start there, you know? Journey of a Thousand Mile begins with a single step, so hey, let's start there and let's keep, you know, making progress. Exactly. It's the competitive spirit within us all that drives us. What we want to achieve, we need to have some sort of competitiveness in us in order to succeed it, uh, succeed for it. And I thought this episode really covered how that was demonstrated uh, within Sega's rise. Yeah, Sega, a company that took on a... David took on, you know, Goliath that had 98%. They made a run of it. They had a hell of a time, and I'm sad that they aren't the Sega that I remembered as a kid today. But you know what? That's okay, because it was a hell of a ride, and it was fun to be there as a kid. This episode showed that video games at the time were getting bigger and even more mainstream, and Sega taking on Goliath is proof of that. And it wasn't just for kids anymore. It would get more mature, as hinted in the preview for Episode 5, which I haven't seen that yet personally as of the recording of this, so... I'll be excited to watch that as usual. For those of you that listened to our second episode, you'll definitely get a hint of what's to come in episode five. Oh yeah. So stay tuned for that, pinpoint players. And with that, I want to thank you guys for listening. I just want to remind you that if you want to reach out to us, if you're listening to us on YouTube, just go ahead and leave a comment down in the comment section. You can also reach us on Instagram. Our Instagram is pinpoint players. Or if you want to send us an email, we are uh, pinpointplayers at gmail.com. And one last thing, if you guys like our content and really like what we're doing, give us a five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. We graciously appreciate it. And with that, thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for listening to another episode on High Scores and tune in for episode five next time. Take care, guys.